Welcome to Money Management. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group, and we're here as we are every Saturday at 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets and the economy and to hopefully give you some insights into what the heck is going on with all these things. So we're going to, I'll give you the uh, <laughs> week in review, if you will, in the markets, uh, some of the economic developments, a uh, couple Fed announcements. We'll be talking about inflation and uh, the outlook uh, for the market from some folks around the country, and also some thoughts about uh, just what does it take uh, in terms of money to be financially independent. So right now, let's start with where we ended up, which was pretty good. The Dow closed yesterday at 34,433. That was up 237 points. The S&P set a new high. Uh, it closed at 4280, just below that number. The Nasdaq at 14,360 also had set a new high, though it was off a little bit yesterday. It was at 14,360. The Russell 2000 at 2334. Gold settled at 1776 an ounce. Silver at 26 dollars and one cent. Crude moved up to 73.59 a barrel. The 10-year at 1.52%, and soft white wheat is at 8.50 a bushel. You know, the first half of the year, believe it or not, comes to a close on Wednesday, and I think it's fair to say we've had a pretty good market so far this year. Companies do start reporting their earnings for the second quarter in the middle of next month, and analysts are looking for earnings at uh, the S&P to increase increased by about 64% versus a year ago. That's according to Refinitiv. Now, of course, that was uh, when we were in the doldrums, shall we say, last year. But nonetheless, ex- earnings are expected to be uh, about 8% above the second quarter of 2019 when we had a whole real quarter. This coming up Wednesday, we'll get the private sector jobs report. Thursday, we get the manufacturing report for June and the initial jobless claims. And then on Friday, we'll get the uh, jobs report for June. So that's the preview of coming economic attractions. Now, yesterday, the markets extended gains uh, after we saw a key inflation indicator. It's called the, well, shorthand is PCE, Personal Consumption Expenditures. That's what the Fed uses to set policy. Well, it rose 3.4% in May. That was the fastest increase since the early 90s. Uh, and it, But it was in line with expectations, so it, was not, uh, it didn't really affect the markets at all yesterday. Now, lately, as you may have seen, well, until this week, the market's been pretty much, uh, well, messy, I think is a good enough term. It's been going nowhere. It's as if the stock market was one stock, and that stock has been trading for the last month every day between 99 and 100. And then for no reason we can determine, it went to 98. So, you know, that's pretty much an analogy of how the markets have been, which is to say dull and boring. Nonetheless, that, um, that PCE, the uh, core personal consumption expenditure, what that does, it reflects the rapid pace of economic expansion and the resulting price pressures uh, and it's basically demonstrating how far we've come since we started in this shutdown last year the uh, 
you know, though the gain was the biggest since uh, April of 92. Yep, that's right, April of 92. Uh, again, it met the estimates, and so no big thing. A uh, gentleman named Anu Gagar, who is Senior Global Investment Analyst at Commonwealth, said, this provided this news on the PCE provided support to the Fed's argument that inflation is transitory and will help ally fears that we're witnessing runaway inflation. He added it should continue to provide support to risk assets such as stocks. <laughs> and, you know, it, the, the market closed yesterday, the S&P closed yesterday with what is now a 90% plus gain from the low of March 2. March of 20. Now, I'm not sure anybody could have predicted that. And so, but the key is, is don't let traders, the actions of traders, uh, gauge your investments. They have a whole nother way of looking at the markets. And a lot of the commentary is aimed toward traders, the daily commentary. So you can listen to it, but try not to act on it. Nike came in with some earnings, uh, record revenue in the North American market, uh, digital sales up 41% compared with a year ago, and uh, up 147% compared with 2019, so the stock had a fine day. And for those of you contemplating vacations, I mean, after all, it is summer, Virgin Galactic announced yesterday that the FAA has granted the company the license it needs to fly passengers on future space flights. Stock also jumped up a bunch on that news. And there's a, a, a person on Twitter who goes by the uh, handle of Sentiment Trader. And an interesting observation, not politically oriented, I would add. But uh, despite the S&P uh, being close to a new high, many of the S&P stocks are near their one-month lows. Uh, by the sentiment traders count, more than 40% of the S&P are at their one-month low, which would be an all-time record, which is also interesting when you consider that, once again, we've set a new all-time high. But there are a few things that could be causing this. One is the rally isn't as broad as it appears, but... I think the more likely situation is that it's been the rally has already been broad and stable. So dropping to a one month low, uh, kind of like my other analogy a minute ago uh, from 99 to 98, it's not really that big a deal. So uh, let us segue over into the economic field. I'm going to focus on oil just for a second because it's been going up pretty much. Uh, both West Texas Intermediate which is the type of crude that we use. It comes from other places other than Texas, but it's still the baseline we use for our oil prices. Brent crude over in the North Sea is what uh, I guess you could say most of the rest of the world uses. But in any regard, both of those gauges have risen over the past four weeks simply because people are optimistic about uh, the uh, global vaccinations, uh, the pickups in summer travel all around the world. Cushing, Oklahoma, and if you haven't been there, I wouldn't necessarily recommend going there. It's flat, but they sure do have a lot of oil storage tanks. That's the delivery point for all U.S. crude. In any case, uh, the inventories dropped by about almost 2 billion barrels to the lowest level since March of 220, so that's helping uh, move the prices higher as well. The Underlying, this is a, a Wanda 
It's O-A-N-D-A, all capitals. I'm not familiar with the company, but in any case, that company and a gentleman named Jeffrey Halley, who is an analyst there, had this to say. Oil's underlying physical demand picture remains positive. He said, despite the noise in financial markets, the real world is on the right track and will require increasing amounts of energy as it reopens. I'd say that's a pretty accurate assessment of the situation. Now, Bank America this last Monday said that Brent, the Brent price, would likely average $88 a barrel this year but could hit 100 next year on this pent-up demand we're seeing and more private car usage. And Brent just as a rule of thumb, is uh, about a couple dollars a barrel more expensive than West Texas Intermediate. And, you know, people are getting back in their cars again, and it's showing up in the numbers in a big way. So that's going to keep an upward pressure on prices. That's kind of like a baked-in inflation, I guess you could say, into some of the uh, prices there. And, yes, uh, let's see, Thursday we had the uh, third report on the GDP figures from the first quarter. They were unrevised, didn't change anything, uh, still showed a growth of 6.4%, which is pretty dang good. Uh, and consumer spending was the biggest driver of growth in the quarter, spending on durable goods at a, up at a 49% annual rate, and purchases of uh, cars and parts uh, up at a 65% rate. And first quarter corporate profits, uh, which had hit a record high, now showing an increase of 2.4% from quarter four and are up 15.5% from a year ago. So as we like to say, the trend is our friend. And right now, I just want to let, there's one other bit of news I want to share before we go into real estate and uh, what the Fed had to say this past week. And that is that uh, online, <laughs> online retail sales uh, in the U.S., uh, during the Prime Day event this past week, uh, surpassed record levels of e-commerce spending uh, reached during Cyber Monday last year. Now, uh, total e-commerce sales Monday and Tuesday, and this isn't just Amazon, uh, but the biggest part of it, I guess you could say, was. But the total sales surpassed $11 billion. That's a 6.1% growth compared to uh, last October's Prime Day. And uh, more than 1 trillion visits to U.S. retail sites and over 100 million items, over 18 product categories. Looks like this online shopping is kind of a thing to stay. What do you think? <laughs> Real estate. Yes, indeed. You know, the sharp increase in existing home prices has kept more buyers on the sidelines and has contributed to what was the fourth straight month of declining sales of previously owned homes. Now, that's according to the National Association, National Association of Realtors, and they ought to know. So existing home sales dropped by nine-tenths of a percent in May. But overall, May sales rose 44.5% from a year ago. And that was, again, because, you know, home sales were at next to nothing about this time a year ago. The uh, economists that were surveyed by the journal, the Wall Street Journal, expected a 2.1% decline in sales. Uh, and, again, that is most of the housing market, quite frankly. There's an old saying in uh, the commodities market and, well, I guess real estate as well, that the best cure for high prices is high prices. And that's certainly been true. And on Tuesday, 
Again, that's uh, one of the reasons why we learned that the existing home sales are down for the fourth month. There are now just 1.2 million homes for sale across the whole country. That's a 20% drop from a year ago, yet prices keep moving up. It's the old supply-demand thing, folks. It's not manipulation. It's just, I want to buy a house and there aren't any to buy. Uh, and here's a kicker. For May, the median price, that's the, the price right dead in the middle of houses, uh, sales of existing homes reached $350,300. That's up 23% from last year. So um, if that's the middle, I'd say there's got to be a whole lot of houses selling for a whole lot more than that. Now, new home sales are also down, now down for the second month in a row, but not exactly for the same reasons. Now, they've been going down, that is to say, sales of new homes have been generally been going down since January, and that's due to, again, to the upgrade in prices and, well, the lack of completed homes available for sale. Uh, a good way to cut through some of this volatility and get a better picture of the housing market, I think, is to look at a 12-month moving average. What that looks, shows you is that sales are currently, this is new homes, sales are currently at the fastest pace since 2007, despite the recent declines. So as we've seen from a number of economic reports, if you look at housing starts, retail sales, new home sales, etc., there's a kind of a contest taking place between consumers who are back in force as restrictions have eased and they're able to be normal again, and the companies that, well, are struggling to keep up with demand. And business investment is likely a tailwind that's going to help uh, real GDP move forward for sure going forward. Let's. <laughs> that was the Department of Redundancy Department there. Sorry. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, strong demand and continued strong demand, driven a lot by stimulus spending, has really, well, taken down business and retail inventories and has boosted demand for manufactured goods. So, But manufacturers, they're having to wrestle with these higher commodity prices, and they, of course, have to deal with the supply chain challenges. And the ongoing labor shortage, it's making them hard to fill their orders. So it's kind of a closed circle. Now, a couple comments from the Federales. Um, Mr. Powell held forth at the House this week, and he, that's Jerome Powell, chair of the Federal Reserve. And he said, and I'm quoting, uh, we will not raise interest rates preemptively because we fear the, try to get Mike, we will not raise interest rates preemptively because we fear the possible onset of inflation. We will wait for evidence of actual inflation or other imbalances. Well, that makes sense. Now, he also said, and I'm quoting, the economy has shown sustained improvement. Widespread vaccinations have joined unprecedented monetary and fiscal policy actions in providing strong support to the recovery. Indicators of economic activity and employment have continued to strengthen. Real GDP this year appears to be on track to post its fastest rate of increase in decades, unquote. He, he talked about uh, airline tickets, hotel prices, lumber. Lumber also down a bunch, uh, by the way, in the last week or so. Um, 
but uh, he he noticed those as generally surging com- uh, demand pumping up an economy that's again been having to work under substantial government in- imposed restrictions. He said these factors should resolve themselves in the coming months. I think that's another way of saying uh, transitory. You know, they're not going to be around for a long time, and I think that's true because you think about it. You know. We've all been, <laughs> what I say, under house arrest for however long, and now we're out being able to, uh, well, go out and see people and mix and mingle and uh, all those kinds of things, and so there's going to be more activity. Uh, I fly and have flown, uh, well, I won't say quite a lot, but regularly during all of this last year and some. And it was a lot easier when there was nobody on the airplane, I'll tell you that. But right now, oh, buddy, uh, everybody and their grandmother's trying to get on those things. And it's, um, again, just another example of how uh, we're moving back to normal. Let me uh, share with you, changing horses a little bit here, uh, some of the thoughts from some folks about where they think the markets are going from here. The... uh, This guy's got a good title. He's Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Fundamental Equities at BlackRock. I wonder if that all fits on one business card. Anyhow, his name's Tony Dispirito. And he said in a research note this week that higher quality stocks are trading at their largest valuation discount to the market since the dot-com bubble of the early 2000s. Well... He defines high-quality stocks, uh, those companies that generate profits and support pricing power. So, obviously, it, uh, it excludes all those SPACs that you may have heard about. We don't talk about those because, quite frankly, they're not worth talking about, to investors anyway. The companies manage their balance sheets and cash flows effectively. They have strong accounting credibility and actually return capital to shareholders in a disciplined manner, usually through dividends. And again, these are his high-quality stocks. And despite impressive fundamental features of high-quality companies, the stocks themselves have, uh, once again using his phrase, sucked wind going on nine months now. His research shows that quality stocks have underperformed since the vaccine announcements in November 2020. Instead of paying up to own quality companies among global economic recovery, ones that could lift their dividends and share repurchase plans, investors unfortunately have chosen to avoid or sell those stocks in favor of riskier bets that they feel have produced strong gains early in the recovery. Now, Mr. Dispirito says, that tide is about to swing back to quality. We see potential for quality to re-rate higher, As the cycle evolves, the market will look ahead to more normalized growth rates. Investors are likely to grow more cautious amid outcomes, excuse me, amid concerns around taxes, inflation, and the timing of a Fed policy shift. So, according to Scott Menard, he is chief investment officer at Guggenheim. He says technology is the big story. He said the total output of the economy is now above its pre-pandemic that's hard to say, when unemployment was at 3.5%. Today, unemployment is about 6 and the labor pool has gotten smaller. 
He said, despite that, we still have higher output. That's because there was an acceleration in the implementation of technology in 2020, which improved efficiency and productivity, which of and unto itself is deflationary. The fundamental underlying foundations of inflation from a monetary short-term statistics, as well as long-term fundamental perspectives, all lead to the conclusion that inflation is not the problem, he said. We are in high gear. Our economy is sound, and we are not going to have a recession. I would share that view. Now, uh, let's see here. The median forecast among Fed policymakers now calls for the GDP, gross domestic product, to increase by 7% from a year earlier in the fourth quarter. And that compares with a forecast of 6.5%. Let's see. Invesco chief global market strategist. This lady's name is Christina Hooper. Christina says, This is a precarious time. Stocks have gone a relatively long period without any major sell-off, and there's heightened sensitivity to every utterance from the Fed as it attempts to transition to the start of normalization, unquote. Uh, She goes on to say, We see potential in regional markets that lagged in the second quarter, those being particularly China and Japan, as well as among those companies and sectors most exposed to the economic reopening. This includes uh, those companies uh, in the energy, financial, and U.S. and small cap sectors. Investors should take profits in some of the year-to-date winners, they said, and that might have limited upside ahead, and those would include real estate, investment trusts, consumer discretionary, and some of the industrial names. Now, according to First Trust, and these guys, uh, well, they're pretty good. That's all I can say. They're pretty consistent and do a great job. But they say that our capitalized profits model, that's First Trust capitalized profits model, suggests U.S. stocks remain cheap, and not only at today's interest rates, but even using the 10-year at 2%, and it's about one and a half right now. Corporate profits have already made a V-shaped recovery from the plunge of last year uh, when the pandemic was first erupting. And with virus data continuing to improve, widespread access to vaccine and consumers flush with purchasing power, they say to expect profits to keep growing and hitting new record highs. Now I'd like to um, focus a little bit on inflation and I don't want to uh, make too much of this because I'm still in the uh, Fed's camp of this being transitory, at least for now, given uh, the knee-jerk responses that we're seeing from folks, you know, uh, free at last, free at last kind of thing, right? And uh, so inflation is coming, but is it? You know, the alarm bells uh, been ringing since last year's stimulus packages were announced, but our you know, higher prices of and unto themselves, a foregone conclusion? Mm, I don't think so. Current numbers are in being influenced by what the econo- <laughs> sorry, economists call the base effects. Those are skewed comparisons with a year ago when the government restrictions had most of the uh, economy locked up. 
Now, those base effects are likely to dissipate when the June numbers come out next month. So, once again, uh, the basis for talking about transitory uh, inflationary pressures. So, what's the fuss? Well, inflation is the rise in prices, all, you know, just normally. If you put it another way, it's the loss of your spending power. Because inflation has several causes. And generally, there's two general categories uh, to look at them as, just to keep it simple. One is supply-demand imbalances. The other is the amount of money that's actually in circulation. The more worrisome inflation has broader implications. As we talked about oil just a minute ago, it's at the highest point now in a couple years. And that's simply because it was down so far, that base effect, if you will. When supply is limited, oil prices increase. Okay. Now, because consumers are paying more for heating oil or gas, they have less to spend on other goods and services. Thus, energy inflation, for whatever reason, can cause a ripple effect on different parts of the economy. Because think about it. Oil is everywhere. You know, contrary to what the electric car kids would like you to believe, uh, oil is used for a lot of things that don't include just gasoline. I mean, all products that we have, uh, derivatives that we use, plastics, oh my goodness. I mean, it's quite a wide range. So, the price change of one good or service, such as, uh, you know, the toy du jour or dare I say crude oil, doesn't indicate sustained inflation. To have widespread, ongoing, lasting impact, prices need to change for a whole basket of goods, goods and services that are produced by the economy, not just one or two things. So that's directly influenced by the amount of money in circulation, which is a major reason behind today's concerns. You see, there's a lot of money out there. Most of it is sitting in the banks, in reserves, not being touched. Uh, Our savings are quite high. Savings rate is quite high. There's a lot of money out there, but it's not being spent in any significant uh, amount. So when the money supply grows, but the speed of money exchange and the output of goods and services doesn't, you see an increase in prices, okay? So higher inflation, oh yes, it can increase your cost of living, That well, in everything, and which then reduces the spending power of your money. <clears throat> For those folks living off a fixed budget, like many in retirement, significantly higher prices can be even more concerning because you don't have a way to combat that. But inflation can be good for holders of assets whose values do rise faster than inflation. You know, some things like uh, some things like real estate and timber and those kinds of things. I have a chart in front of me uh, which gives inflation uh, using uh, interest rates going back to 1964, 84, 04, and 21. And what they are doing is, what could you buy with interest earned from a CD? Now, this is under the heading of, believe it or not, this is a six-month CD. In 1964, 
the CD rate on a six-month CD. Now, this is, this assumes you're putting a hundred thousand dollars in a CD. Okay, so the the rate was four point three percent, which would have given you forty-three hundred dollars, which at that time could have bought you two Ford Mustangs, two whole ones, not not toys, not Matchbox, but the real deal. And uh, we were just starting to talk a little bit about inflation, and I wanted to continue to share with you some of these uh, changes that have occurred over the last, uh, I don't want to do the math. Anyhow, going back to 1964, in terms of what you were able to earn on CDs and the effect of uh, rates over that time. Now, in 1984, <laughs> you could have made, and this is a six-month CD, 8.85%. So that $100,000 CD that we were referring to earlier would have generated $8,850 a year. You could have bought one Mustang, 1984 brand-new Mustang, and it says on this chart, 101 full gas tank refills. Holy camoly. And that's not quite where we are now. Now, in 2004, well, not quite the same. 2.66 2.66 was the CD rate, $2,600 annual income, which for that Ford Mustang, 20-year-old Ford Mustang, you get a top-end engine kit. That's it. That's what you were able to get off your interest. And finally, this year, you earned a whole 0.18% on that $100,000 for six months, which would generate you $180, which would give you gas tank refills. Done. So, in 1964, you could have bought two cars with the CD interest you had. Today, you can only buy three, what, five-gallon gas tank refills. Now, that's inflation. Okay? Uh, I mean, that's the real world. It, uh, there's a lot of other things going on behind it, but it does kind of give you, uh, sure, you earn less interest. That's part of it, certainly. But over that time, it's just a function of you, if you're in that fixed income situation, you can see how that could be, uh, well, not just painful, but dangerous. So with that in mind, uh, I want to go on further uh, in, I don't mean beat up this, but folks, I don't think, they really don't grasp this, this thing about bonds and interest rates. See, bond investors, you get, you have two sources of return. One, when, when you invest in a bond. One, it's called the coupon, which states your annual income in a percentage. And the principal you get back at maturity. So your coupon is a cash flow that happens in the future, right? Because you, you, you invest today and you get it out however long until it matures. So when inflation or even the fear of future inflation, as we saw a week ago, goes up, those future cash flows become a lot less valuable. That's because if the market believes there's going to be higher inflation, the yields on bonds will go up to reward people for saying, hey, you're going to take more risk. You better get a better return. But existing bond prices will then fall to a greater or lesser extent. Typically, the degree of falling is a function of 
how long it is until your bond or bond fund generally comes due, uh, what is the rating on your bonds, um, who the issuers are. The, there's a lot of kind of subjective stuff to it, but it really comes down to it's pretty much a math deal. And so bottom line is interest rates go up, existing bond prices will tend to go down. I would suspicion that if you were to look at your bond portfolios uh, compared to prices of even just six months ago, you would see some diminution in the values. Again, cash flow stays. That's not the problem. It's when, as, and if you need to sell some of those bonds, you're not going to get the uh, full value for them. See, stock investors get paid when the stock price goes up, right? Well, assuming they sell. And, and stock prices are generally tied to the direction of a company's profits. And if inflation's going up, that can cause earnings to decline if their cost, the company's costs go up and revenues decrease as consumers buy less of whatever it is that they sell or make. And if a company needs to borrow money, its borrowing costs may also be a lot higher during inflationary periods. This is particularly challenging for companies like utilities who are big cash cows. Uh, that's not the right word. Cash users, cash burners. Uh, that's the nature of their business. It's not bad or good. It's just how they are. And so if their costs, which are interest rates, go up, that isn't going to help their uh, prices a great deal, their stock prices. Now, some companies can combat the effects of rising input costs, uh, it's real simply. They pass them on to us because they have pricing power. They they can do that. You're still going to buy whatever it is they're selling. Uh, you know, and then there's also the uh, trick with the packaging where the package looks the same, but gee gosh, what happened to all the stuff that used to be in here, right? Um, I think we've all had that experience in one level or another. And so... After the initial shock of inflation, quality companies can offer overcome some of the effect on their earnings. Now, the level of inflation matters, of course. If you look at the S&P 500, real returns have been the greatest. Now, again, this is real is after inflation. Is when inflation is between 2 and 3%. And... Forgetting the aberrations of the last couple of months, that's pretty much where we've been averaging. Some market analysts, market analysts are expecting inflation to be about 3.5% over the next 12 months. But for it to fall back to 2 to 3% each year after for the next 10 years, which would not be bad for stocks, would it? What about holding cash? Well... The value of cash also decreases over time as inflation takes hold. That's because, again, your dollars today can buy more than dollars tomorrow if inflation rises. But, infl again, even if inflation only rises by 2% a year or some such, it's still going up. And you have to protect yourself against that. And in my experience, my opinion, the only way to really do that is to have a good chunk of your holdings in high-quality stocks, whether it's individually or through funds or ETFs or unit trust, doesn't matter. Just so you have some, so you have some growth, something there to protect you going forward from higher prices. 
Now, we all know it's really hard to predict when and by how much inflation may rise. Those of us who were present in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, are certainly hoping that we don't see a movie like that any time in the near future. That was no fun at all. Now, investors who hold assets that perform well over the long term in various conditions, well, they can potentially navigate higher price environments without sacrificing their overall returns. And I would submit to you once again that a portfolio of high-quality stocks is a very good way to help provide that benefit to you. You know, stocks have historically been in, among the best at accomplishing that long-term result. You can look it up. I mean, shoot. The reality is that 7 of 10 years, well, in any 10-year period, stocks are up at least 7 of those years. They aren't as risky as uh, my friends in the financial media would have you believe it. So, Take a look at your holdings, rebalance if you need to, but don't uh, take any more risk than you need to get to where you need to be. I thank you very much for listening. This is our program for today. We will be back next Saturday with more market commentary and insights, and hope to have you back then. I thank you very much for listening. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you've been listening to Money Management. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small-company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products or subject to the claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results and there is always risk associated with investment.